Good morning uh, to you all. Um, so, uh, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last night, but before I do that, can I pray uh, this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for uh, lavishing us with your, the riches of your grace and kindness in Jesus Christ. Thank you for blessing us with rest last night. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning in this place to honor and glorify you. We ask again that you would use this time to show us more of your heart, show us more of our Savior, to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we would be people who live not for our glory, but for his praise and glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So... Let me catch us up a little bit. For those who weren't with us last night, we uh, talked in our first session about the God that we image, and I labored to make the point that God is beautiful. We talked a lot about the beauty of God and God's beauty uh, being seen most powerfully in his communal life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing uh, as beautiful community. And then we talked about the, uh, the image of God. Uh, following that, the God we image, God is beautiful. The image of God, uh, particularly each individual uh, being worthy of immeasurable value and dignity because the Bible declares that we are the image of God and so that our sense of self-identification, our sense of identity um, is rooted, um, we're called to have it be rooted in, in the reality that we are image bearers of the living God. So we focused a lot on the, the reality and implications of individual dignity and the way in which sin causes us to strive for dignity in ways that rooted in something other than the fact that we're the image of God. And then I kind of introduced where we are headed. I introduced the, uh, the, the notion of beautiful community to say to, say to us that um, the image of God, as I uh, used a quote from the theologian Herman Bovink, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, no matter how richly gifted that human being is or may be, but you can only get to the full vision of what the image of God is when you picture all of redeemed humanity together, uh, as Bobbing says, as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler exercising dominion, over the entire creation. This is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. And so we, we need one another to fully reflect uh, the image of God. And this is what I call beautiful community. Um, and so this is our focus for this morning, beautiful community. And if you remember uh, last night, we looked at Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. This is a picture of a ziggurat mountain, which is uh, what the Tower of Babel would have looked like in Genesis chapter 11. And I, uh, I remind you, I call uh, Genesis chapter 11 the, the ghettoization of humanity. 
uh, where we, because of our sinful rebellion in our union, in our unity uh, as one people against God, God comes down in judgment and in mercy and confuses our language. And it says the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth. Um, And so from that time forward, the story of humanity is is deeply rooted in one of division, one of misunderstanding, one of hostility between people groups, between ghettos. Uh, my cultural and ethnic ghetto, my socioeconomic ghetto, and there's, there's a natural distrust that we have for those who are not like us. We, we drift towards sameness. Uh, and so the point that I made was God's response in Genesis chapter 12 is, in real sense, I would call a promise for the restoration of beautiful community. Because Genesis 11, the, the, the division and the confusion and the, the spreading out of people groups all over the world into various national and ethnic groups God calls Abraham at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. And it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And here is the point. He says, in you... Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All of those families that are now dispersed and divided over the face of all of the earth, in you, Abraham, they will be blessed. In other words, I'm going to bring a reunion. And we know from God's word, particularly uh, in the book of Galatians, that this is this promise is pointing to Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 13 to 16, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so... He says, in the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And this promise, I love what, how the prophet Isaiah puts it in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, to Isaiah chapter 62, through Isaiah chapter 62, uh, where's my, okay, here we go. I want to have the whole, this is a, I love this promise that the Lord makes through Isaiah. And it's important to note that the one who is speaking here, um, is the servant of the Lord. The one who is speaking here, uh, is the same one. Isaiah chapter 61 starts out with these words. The Spirit of the Lord was upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, right? To set at liberty those who are bound. And we know that these are the words of Jesus Christ in his inaugural sermon. So this is the same one who is speaking here at the end of Isaiah 61 into Isaiah 62, where he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will rejoice in my God because he has dressed me in the garments of salvation. In the cloak of righteousness, he has wrapped me like a bridegroom wears a priest's turban and like a bride adorns her ornaments. For as the earth produces what sprouts and a garden and as a garden makes its seed to sprout, so the Lord God will make righteousness and praise sprout before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not be silent. And for the sake of Jerusalem, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like radiant light and her salvation burns like a torch. And the nations will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. And you will be a beautiful crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem. In the hand of your God. This is the Messiah who is to come saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord because he has dressed me in the garments of salvation. He has put on, wrapped me in the cloak of righteousness. And for the sake of Zion, I will not be silent. For the sake of Jerusalem, I will not Keep quiet. I will not stop speaking until her righteousness goes forth like radiant light and her salvation burns like a torch. And this is what will happen with those people whom the Lord will redeem and who delight, he will delight over. You will be a beautiful crown in the hand of the Lord. Notice this, he doesn't say to the people, you will wear a beautiful crown. He says, you will be a beautiful crown in the hand of the Lord. You will be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. All of that I said last night about royal dignity, right? About, about, about royalty. It's this declaration that, the, that wrapped up in our salvation is the restoration of this inherent royal dignity that we have as the people of God. And it's a rock-solid promise. And we see it in Revelation chapter 21, 1, to 4, 1 through 4, where, where the Apostle John says, he, you know, John keeps saying in the book of Revelation, he keeps saying, I saw this and I saw that. I heard this and I heard that. The covers are, are pulled back. And so John can see with his own eyes what is the truth that lies beyond uh, what we experience with our senses. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be with him and God himself will be with them as, as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. John describes the beauty of the bride, the beauty of the bride that is comprised of all of the nations. And so really what it means for us to image God is for us to be beautiful community. The community of the people of God is the image. We're not merely, as John Frame writes, the image of some divine attributes. We image God himself, who's inseparable from all his attributes. And so if God's beauty is seen uh, in his Trinitarian life, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in the humanity that images him. And so while each person has a measurable value and dignity because we're God's image, the most significant way that we bear his image is in community. What does Jesus pray in John 17, the high priestly prayer? He prays for the apostles and then he says, verses 17, uh, verses 20 to 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even, loved them even as you loved me. What is his prayer to the Father over and over and over again? That they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. You remember the clip I showed last night in the, uh, in the first session from the, uh, from the show, uh, man in the high castle, where he's reciting from Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Understand that Jesus is not pulling this out of thin air. Jesus has the Shema on his mind when he is praying this to the Father. That we may be one. Even, he says, as we are one, I and you and you and me, that we reflect the union and the unity that is our God as his image. This is Jesus' prayer for his people. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father for all who would follow him across every line of race and class and ethnicity and gender. And will the Father answer the prayer of the Son? Will he deny the Son what he seeks? 
No, he will not. Even so, as we saw in Isaiah 61, where the the servant says, I will not keep quiet. I will not be silent until it's done. This is where we are headed. We will see this in our message this morning, but again, right, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, this wonderful extended praise that the Apostle makes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here it is, making known to us the mystery of his will. That according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on the earth. To unite, to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. The apostle says, this is the mystery of God's will that he revealed. His purpose, according to what's going to happen in the fullness of time, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. Peter Lightheart uh, wrote a book uh, that was published two years ago in 2017 titled The End of Protestantism. This is a book to commemorate the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And by end, he uh, had a double meaning, the, the goal, the telos of Protestantism, and that the end of Protestantism, the goal of Protestantism, was the end of Protestantism. And he said that reformers were not trying to start another branch of the church. They were trying to call the church back to fidelity to the Word of God. And in an interview about that book, he he made this profound statement. He said, the church is a sign of a cosmic unity that all things are summed up in Christ. It, and the church is to be, he said, the visible communion of human beings that anticipates that ultimate union of all things in Christ. The church is to be a visible communion of human beings that anticipates what's going to happen. Right? The ultimate union of all things in Christ. It's a living sign. A community where that unity is already experienced in some degree. And this, he says, is in some respects the whole point of redemptive history that God is going to knit back the human race in his son. The whole point is that God is going to knit back the human race in his son. And when... The church, he says, when the church fails 
to be that proleptic reality. And I have to admit, when he said that, I had to look up what does proleptic mean. That anticipatory, that forward-looking reality that, that exists in the present time, when it, when it fails to be that reality that is anticipating what's happening, he says uh, th- that the, when it fails to be the re- proleptic reality of that eschatological, that end-time union of all things in Christ, he says when we, are, when we fail to do that, we are very deeply failing in the calling that we've been given. We fail to be a visible sign, a living sign that anticipates the reality that all things are summed up in Jesus Christ. He says we are very deeply failing in the calling that we've been given. When we are content to, when we are content to to allow the barriers that exist in society and in cultures to, to remain in the, the walls of the local church, in the communion of the local church, we are failing to be that living sign. When I have particularly young people, you know, uh, millennials in the generation after me, they catch a lot of flack you know, in, in writings and what have you, you know. But when I talk to young folk, a lot of times they ask, it's like, you know, my, my life at school, at work, is more integrated than my life in the church. There's more, I experience more diversity in my life outside of the body of Christ than I do inside of the church. They realize just inherently that there's something wrong. That we are failing in this calling that we have been given. And this is the Spirit's work. I'm gonna, I'll repeat this in the sermon this morning. I know. But this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is preeminently concerned with renewing us in knowledge according to the image of our Creator. We see this in passages like Colossians 3, 1 to 17. I don't have time to run through them. Ephesians 4, 1 to 32, which I'll reference this morning in the sermon. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 26. Romans 15. Uh, one through, through seven. I don't remember if I shared this with you yesterday. Maybe it was with the group yesterday morning. Uh, when I was talking to a group of folks that I had coffee with from this church yesterday morning, talking about the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission that, that, um, that we're building here, that we're striving to equip churches with the confidence and competence to welcome others the way Christ welcomes us. And that's particularly across lines of, of, of difference. And, and that language, the welcome others, the way Christ welcomes us, comes directly out of Romans chapter 15, particularly verse 7. In that passage, the Apostle Paul has been dealing uh, with the, the, the conflict and the division in the church 
In Rome, that is primarily Jew and Gentile, he spent 11 chapters kind of laying out the details of the gospel. And then he, in chapter 12, begins to apply it um, in practical ways when he says, Therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, your reasonable, your spiritual worship. And, and he's in chapter 14, begins to talk to them about the conflicts that they have where some who are, who are, are, are thinking that, uh, you know, when I follow Jesus, I, I need to be a vegetarian or I can't drink wine or I've got to regard one day as more holy than, uh, than another. And, and Paul's saying to them, he's saying, do not for the sake of food, destroy the one for whom Christ died. And in chapter 15, he says, uh, therefore, we who are strong, and he means strong in the faith, have an obligation. We are obligated to bear, and that is to, to carry. He's using cruciform language there, like Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, He says we are obligated to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Then he says, let each of us please his neighbor for good to build him up. For even Christ didn't please himself, but as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who have reproached you have fallen on me. And he says, everything that was written beforehand was written for our encouragement that through the endurance of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he says, may the God who grants endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In all of this conflict, in your diversity, Jewish believers, Gentile believers together in the church, he said, may may the God who gives encouragement and endurance grant that you live in such harmony with one another that together, literally in the Greek, it's with one mouth that your unity is so expressive. With one mouth, you, you glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, in verse 7, therefore, because of all these things, welcome one another as Christ welcomes you for the glory of God. That this reality that, that we've received such immeasurable welcome into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ is supposed to be in, reflected in the way that we welcome one another. And that is particularly across lines of difference because you have to remember he's talking about conflict that exists between these Jewish and Gentile believers. And let me just say this. How does Christ... Welcome us into the glory of God. It's not a passive welcome. The Lord Jesus is in glory at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's not just sitting there saying, hey, I'm ready. Whenever you are ready to come to me, the door is open. Come on. No, his welcome is active. He pursues he pursues, he runs us down <laughs> and, and invites us by the power of the Spirit, come on in, come on in. Come. He doesn't stop chasing us. So the welcome is not simply, oh, let's just be, let's make sure we're welcoming. Um, let's make sure that we're ready to 
receive people who are different. That's a part of it. But it is also how are we actively pursuing those who are different than the majority. This is uh, a quote from Stephen Guthrie. I, I, I mentioned him yesterday in his book, The Holy Spirit, The Creator Spirit, uh, the Creator Spirit, rather, Creator Spirit, The Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human. And he says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, one may think of the Spirit much more personally and creatively as an artist whose one subject is the Son, capital S-O-N, whose one subject is the Son, Jesus Christ, and who is concerned to paint countless portraits of that subject on countless human canvases using the paints and brushes provided by countless human cultures and historical situation. It is Jesus, the incarnate Son of the Father, and none other that the Spirit seeks to portray. And each portrait is successful and creative, not because it makes of him what is, he is not, by forming him in our likeness and conforming him to our preferences and predilections, but because it uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that is in him. That this is what the Holy Spirit does. He's, he is concerned with one subject. Jesus, the incarnate Son of the Father, and is concerned to paint that one subject on countless human portraits. And as Guthrie writes so beautifully, each portrait is successful and creative, not because it makes of him what he is not, but because... It uses ever new cultural approaches and historical situations to bring out more of the infinite variety of saving truth that's in Jesus. Beautiful community is the work of the Spirit. I got to press on because I'm going to get to some, I think I'm going to, okay, I, got, I, have to, I have to read this too. And then we'll, because this, so, this is too good. Um, Stephen Guthrie again sorry for all these long paragraphs but I don't know how to shorten it to get the impact but he says the spirit is not an automated die press punching out stacks of Jesus copies one after the other the spirit's perfecting work is creative and sensitive to the character of the material before him those filled by the spirit are one body in Christ renewed in his image yet Varieties of services and diverse gifts are given by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. The work of the Holy Spirit is both particularizing or diversifying and unifying. The distinctiveness of each member does not destroy the unity of the body. The unity of the body does not annul the distinctiveness of each member. The new creation will be beautiful because there will be harmony and right relationship between God and humanity, among humanity, and among all that God has made. Each 
thing will be most truly what it is and what is more and amazing, the utterly distinct character of each being will contribute to the beauty of the whole. Understand, the beauty is in the diversity. (laughs) The beauty is in the diversity brought together as one body. Not washed into the same uh, 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 colors. (laughs) Not washed into the same color or not made necessarily uniform, but unified in all of the diversity. This is where we're headed. So let me, let me say this here. And I've got about 20 more minutes, so I'm, I will be skipping through some things. Because we're a Presbyterian church, right, in the PCA. So I'm sure all of you um, spend time regularly reading through the Westminster Confession of Faith together was just larger and shorter catechisms, right? But, <laughs> I mean, that's a joke, right? Um, right, but any, any person who is in ordained office, elder or deacon uh, in the PCA, we have to say that as a part of our vows that we believe or we hold to that the, Westminster, that the Westminster Confession of Faith, together with just larger and shorter catechisms, uh, represent or expression of the doctrine laid out in Scripture. And chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is on the communion of the saints. This is a, right, this is a doctrine, document written in, uh, in Westminster, in England, in the 1600s. And, when, and it, is, it is a consensus document that looks at the scriptures and all the Westminster divines. What kinds of statements can we make on these particular subjects that we can agree upon? And of the communion of the saints, the, the relationship, the fellowship that the people of God have, with, have together with each other, they say this. All saints who are united to Jesus Christ as their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they participate in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to perform those public and private duties which lead to their mutual good both inwardly and outwardly. So... Within the body of Christ, we have fellowship with God uh, and with Christ in his graces, sufferings, death, and, uh, and, uh, and, and glory. And we're united to one another in love and we have a mutual obligation. A mutual obligation to perform public and private duties that lead to the mutual good Inwardly and outwardly, not just the spiritual good, but the material good as well. And the second paragraph says, it is the duty of professing saints to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as help them to edify one another. It is their duty also to come to the aid of one another in material things according to their various abilities and necessities. 
And here's the, here's the money sentence for me in this application. As God provide, affords opportunity, this communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. As God affords opportunity, this communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. At what point in American history have Presbyterians not held to the Westminster Confession of Faith together with its larger and shorter catechisms? At no point, that's right. So, how is it? How is it that I can go and I can, and I can preach at a historic Presbyterian church that is a wonderful body of believers today, but I can stand in the pulpit uh, at First Presbyterian Church of Augusta in Georgia, and I can look out and I can see b- uh, below me under the, the pulpit the, on the primary floor, I can see bodies and bodies, and then I look up and I can see a balcony there in the back, and I know historically that that balcony is where the slaves would have sat. And the floor is where the, the, the slave owners and the masters and their families would have sat. How is it that those who said, as God affords opportunity, this communion is to be extended to all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus and we can have those in my own historical denomination write apologies for the good of slavery. It is because the human heart, you know, uh, is it Arianda? Grande song, you know, the heart wants what it wants, right? That the human heart can be fooled into thinking that we can ignore what God's word says and actually be blessed in our doing. That we can say that we can, we can give in to cultural norms and expressions and values that, that, that wage war against the, the word of God and not pay a price. Why is there in the United States of America a majority African-American church? Why? It's because we wouldn't live out this reality. We were were content to maintain the divides in the society within the body of Christ. I would say, well, I got to keep going because I'm never going to get to where I want to get to. But we've got to be honest and realize 
that the residue of these realities are still with us. We, we can't fool ourselves into thinking, oh, well, it's just easy now, right? Let's, oh, let, it's just, right, that's just in the past. We don't, we don't need to worry about that anymore. No, reconciliation is always centered on truth. Our reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ comes by way of the truth that we are sinners without hope except in the saving mercy of God. There's no reconciliation unless we're willing to confess that that is the truth. And it is the same thing in our relationships with one another. We, we have to be willing to expose the truth in all of its ugly forms and have it out on front and deal with it as those who are striving to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what we'll need. This is why we'll see in a few minutes when I get to my sermon. <laughs> oh, we need to live by resurrection power in this. I don't have time to go through this. I gotta, I gotta keep, uh, I've got to keep pressing. But this... What, what I'm bringing up here is talking about today and the reality of the ghettoization of humanity that's ongoing in society when we think, uh, and even so, this article in the Washington Post talks about there's much more, more and more, uh, this is from 2013, we see um, while race-based segregation has been slowly declining, class-based segregation has been increasing. So we, like, as a, as a society, as a culture, we never, like, get there, <laughs> right? We never get there. And the reality is much of the class-based seg- segregation is still also very racialized. And so this is um, Dr. Christina Edmondson, who uh, is a professor and a dean at uh, Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And she wrote this in an article a couple years ago when she talks about our situation. She says, instead of hearing the experience of the other, owning the consequences of our own cultural narcissism, we fast from different voices and turn to news outlets, places of worship, and friend groups that match and fertilize our biases. And this approach, she says, ensures our entrenchment and our entitlement. That we, uh, we naturally keep ourselves in certain echo chambers. And we fast, she says, from different places of worship and news outlets and friends groups that, that match and fertilize our biases. Biases, mind you, that we might not even be consciously aware of. But in doing that, we... We ensure our entitlement and our entrenchment in those biases. So I'm going to play another um, clip uh, from my son's project from a few years ago that I heard God laughing project. And um, this is a song called Home. 
And the song is interesting in that it, uh, well, this is a clip of the song called Home, just like yesterday. I can't play the whole song because it takes too long. But it starts out in a very upbeat way. Um, and it's talking about, uh, this is his, talking about how he's, he's longing to be back at home, back with his family in Maryland. He's a college student and how he'll, he's so grateful. And, and it's just so upbeat about all the things that he's learned um, while he's away and, and how home is such this wonderful thing. Um, and so I will say, I, so three of my ch- four children are on this song. So my daughter is singing in the, uh, the, the vocals that says, there ain't no place like home. Um, and uh, Nabil, my second born, you, don't, you won't hear him in this uh, um, because he has the upbeat part. My oldest um, wrote a poem, and what I'm going to play is the poem he wrote, and it's about longing, living now, and longing for our true home. And the tension of that, as particularly as a young African-American male. And so, so now, as I set this up, listen to the words that he, that he says and think about, okay, like, how do we engage this? Because he's, he is a part of a PCA church um, that is majority white. But this is, his, this is how he's been experiencing the tension as an African-American male. And so we've got to deal with things like this in, um, in the church if we want to pursue reconciliation. So here we go.
this is kind of, that was really a lament. It was a lament about the challenges of still trying to live this life of faith in a society that's still racialized. And part of the way in which we have to press into these kinds of issues is to be willing to lament with those who are lamenting. Even if we might not agree with every aspect of their perspective of things, but to be willing to mourn, as the Word of God says, with those who mourn. And so, I would say a couple more things, Two, three more slides, and then we'll wrap up because I only got a couple minutes here. Uh, in her book, Loving to Know, that I mentioned yesterday, Esther Lightcap Meek talks about love, and loving to know means exercising courage to enter into some discussions where we feel the discomfort of half understanding. For Christian believers, she writes, it's knowing Christ in communion that best captures the dynamism of knowing well in every other corner of our lives and pursuits. And in their book, Churches, Cultures, and Leadership, a book that I highly uh, recommend by uh, Mark Brownson and uh, Juan Martinez. They write this. They say, our capacities to understand each other, to share and work, and to hope require an increasing consciousness about our own worldviews and a commitment to listen to and walk under the influence of others. For many in the dominant culture in which one element of the life world is entitlement, this can be a stressful experience. Then they say, for those in the minority, the need for trust remains a challenge, especially if memories are saturated with wounds. But we wade, we, we wade into those waters <laughs> in the name of Jesus. We press into those waters in the name of Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually end the slideshow because i got to get to It'll be easier for me to get to this last slide and kind of talk about um, these four, four things that um, the way I describe, like, how do we do this? How do we, how do we um, press forward in this way? Uh, what are some ways to be thinking about it? Uh, and four things, and I shared these with, uh, with your pastor when he came to visit me. Um, in Washington, D.C., say for any church, congregation, or ministry, first thing is you've got to devote to the doctrine. And by that, I mean devote to the doctrine of unity and diversity. That that, that is not a nice-to-have if we can get it. That, that this is actually... You see, once 
This is what happens, right? Once the Lord opens my eyes, once I see something in Scripture, I can't unsee it. <laughs> it's there, right? Now, it may, not, it may not come to fruition, but I can't ignore it uh, successfully anymore. So there has to be a devotion to saying, listen, this is at the heart of God. We see it in Scripture. This is where... Humanity is headed. Human, the destiny of humanity is in community and in diverse community, worshiping and glorifying God together with one voice. And so we're devoted to that and we're going to pursue it because it's at the heart of God. Secondly, uh, to probe the preferences. By this, I mean, if we're devoted to the doctrine, here's the thing. Um, we all, every church you will go to is striving, all right, if they're committed to the, the word of God as the authority, is striving in its expression of worship and life to be faithful to the scriptures, to be faithful to what God says in his word. But within what God says in his word, we have a lot of liberty in how we express that worship and life together. Right? The worship experience here in town is different than the worship experience at some other church. And it's not that in town is faithful and the other church is unfaithful. And so we've got to begin to ask the questions about our life as a body and as a congregation. What are the things that we do and why do we do them? Uh, and how much are these things based on our preferences? Based on the fact that we're doing this because this is how we like to do it, right? And that's not a bad thing necessarily or an ungodly thing. But in that, we've got to ask the question, okay, then are there things that in those preferences are hindering those who are not like the majority from finding a sense of belonging and welcoming among us or making it more challenging and difficult, not that we're going to necessarily change everything, but we have to at least have some self-reflective awareness. And so, um, and I, you know, if I had had time, I would have given you all of the stuff that led up to this um, in some of my, my research that leads to these conclusions. Third, count the cost. So devote to the doctrine, probe the preferences, count the cost. Now, right, now you've got to start asking the questions, okay, what things are we willing to hold a little loosely? Are we willing to seek the Lord that for, for changing, that we would give up, that we would actually have some intentionality of decentering the majority in our life together, of looking to, to, to center the, the experiences of those who are in the minority in some way, shapes, and forms. And there's a cost to that. That's uncomfortable. That makes people upset because we've always done things this way. Why are you changing? And you've got to be, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's something that you've got to be, it doesn't happen without some discomfort, <laughs> And then lastly um, is this toast to the truth. 
So I got this from a young lady named Mazare Rogers, who is the community life coordinator for uh, uh, for Grace Downtown, one of our congregations. And she's also a spoken word poet, and she wrote this poem where this line, she says, you know, toast to the, it's about reconciliation. She's like, toast to the truth that I'm dazzling and different, right? That, uh, and I said, well, can I take that from you? I'll give you credit. Um, but it is, this point is about striking a celebratory tone because the other things can sound a little bit challenging and harsh, right? Probe the preferences, count the costs, right? But we are people, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We are people who, um, who are, are promised joy and peace in the Lord. And we're promised that. And so when we see the Lord working in these ways, we need to celebrate it. We need to praise God for it um, so, that, so, that, so, that we, um, uh, so that we strike those, those right notes, not just of the hard stuff, but as the things that we see God doing among us, moving us in the, a, this kingdom-centered, kingdom-minded direction. All right, I'm going to stop there. I've gone over time. I know that uh, I wanted to take a couple of questions. But now, did worship start on in-town time, or do we have time <laughs> for a question? I'll let, Andrew's like, yeah. <laughs> Great. You wanna, okay, thank you. Yes. Can we thank Arwen, please, for coming? Thank you. Erwin is teaching at Reform Theological Seminary this week in Atlanta, and he's very kind to add us to his trip. So thank you, Erwin. For the next two Sundays, we'll continue to explore these themes of cross-cultural friendship and ministry. Uh, at 9.30 a.m., one floor up on the, on the uh, 300 level, so please do join us there. Can I pray briefly for us, please? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. Would you sow the word deep into our hearts and do great work this year? And would you also prepare our hearts for worship now? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.